This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The government says that so far about 60,000 Ukrainians have applied to come to Canada under the special visitor visa program created for them. Now, I have to say I'm impressed with that number because completing the application online in English can be a barrier in itself. The immigration minister says they will receive some, but not all of the supports usually offered to refugee claimants. So what does that entail? And in the meantime, the opposition conservatives want Ottawa to allow fleeing Ukrainians to come in without visas, which is how it is being handled in Europe. So far, the government has not waived the need for visas or the requirement to get biometrics done before arrival. So what do you think? Are we doing enough? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Peter Sturin, President of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, Toronto Branch, and Elise Herzig, Executive Director of Jaius Toronto. That's the Jewish Immigrant Aid Society. This organization is in the resettlement business. And of course, they resettle newcomers of all ethnicities. Welcome. Thank you both. Thank you, Libby. Let's begin with you, Elise. Uh, um, Are you surprised by that 60,000 number? No. I mean, we've not seen this type or the numbers of displaced people leaving a country since the Second World War. The number is close to 4 million people that have left since the war started over 30 days ago. So 60,000 does not, it's not a large number in our mind. But uh, what about the barriers of making that application the way the government wants it? What's interesting about this program is that many, as, as many of you know, people are leaving Ukraine under dire circumstances. They're grabbing what they can before they leave their homes and walking most of the time we're getting a list of places of safety. And what this program allows is someone to apply without a passport. So passports um, documentation tends to be a real big problem for people when they're trying to go to another country. And the fact that the biometric test is the only test that they're going to need is actually not as difficult as as getting papers that might be required. Peter, what's your take on this? Uh, I mean, people fleeing their homes, I don't know if they've got Wi-Fi. Do they speak English uh, about getting these forms done? Well, it's certainly a challenge uh, for the vast majority of them. We know a very large percentage are, are coming uh, from, from eastern Ukraine, where obviously the, uh, the worst shelling and bombardment of cities um, is, is horrific and so people don't even have homes to go back to at this point. Uh, our latest numbers, actually, in Europe, they're saying is now over 5 million people. Wow. Uh, the, numbers, the numbers and close to 5 million, if not more, displaced people in Ukraine alone. So we're talking about 10, people, 10 million people that are no longer in their homes, and they're just looking for support as much as possible on the goodwill of people. And uh, our biggest issue, though, is all these people that are trying to come to Canada um, are not recognized as refugees, which means they ha- get absolutely zero federal, provincial, municipal support. So they don't, they can't apply for healthcare coverage. They will have no financial assistance. They don't even get housing. So if 60,000 were to arrive in Canada without any means and any support, it would be a huge burden, obviously, for, for any community. So, this is why we're, we're lobbying very hard and working with the federal government to ask them to actually provide some kind of financial support so you don't have tens of thousands of people arriving in Canada. And, and another thing is, is, is they, we're talking about 90% of them. The statistics show in here, 90% are women and children. So how does the mother coming into Canada with two young children 
they're under this visa program, they'll be allowed to work. But a mother with two young children, we've already seen cases like this. Another mother arrived recently with three children, all under the age of six. How does that lady go go to work and try to try to support the family? They're they're really going to rely on support from the community, if just possible. But we're doing our very best. But we know that we're going to be overwhelmed very quickly. Well, um, my understanding is they're not convention refugees because there are closer countries that are taking them. Uh, right, Elise? Correct. So the federal government does not deem this group of displaced Ukrainian nationals as refugees because they have other ways of going to countries in Europe that will give them housing, support, and employment. But I think Peter's points are that we really need to be considered because the people that we're already seeing come to Canada do not have access to pensions, do not have access to money. Um, every province is different. So while three provinces, Quebec, Alberta, and British Columbia, have offered access to medical care, the people coming to Ontario do not have access to OHIP. So in his example of the mother with the children, she's coming here, and while this visa will allow her to work, who is going to take care of her children? How is she going to buy them food? How is she going to get them clothing? How is she going to put a down payment on an apartment? Um, and so the issues that Peter's raising about needing money, needing housing, and needing access to medical are basic um, needs that refugees would be have access to. Now, you uh, provide some types of programs uh, with the federal government for people who qualify. So yesterday, the immigration minister said they will get some supports. Uh, do you have any clarity on that, Elise? We have some, and I want to thank Peter for his efforts, and we do want to acknowledge and thank the federal government for so far what they're telling us, and we're hoping that we will be hearing more announcements shortly. Um, regardless of the federal support, we're, what we do at GIS is for people who are either in Ukraine or in surrounding countries, if they're trying to fill out the forms on a pre-arrival basis, we have uh, circulated information that they can reach out to us, and we're helping them make informed decisions about if they come to Canada, what's the process for filling out the forms, and when they come here, the supports that they can get. What we do is we assess an individual family when they come and we're already seeing them and each client is unique and we look at their immediate short and long-term goals. So, for example, in the case that Peter suggested, you know, that mother is going to look for medical care and registering her kids for school. You know, building a professional network and her career goals is a much longer-term goal. She's going to want to know where can she live safely how can she get access to government programs? And what we do is we build those plans with the clients. And I think what we're seeing, and I, I know that Peter is seeing it, you know, as well, there are Canadians step up and there are thousands of people, you know, across the country that want to help welcome these individuals. And at Jaius, and we are working closely with agencies across the country, including the Canadian, the Canadian Ukraine Immigrant Aid Services, of sharing best practices of how to um, get volunteers connected with these newcomers so that they get to the supports that they need um, when they come here. But Peter is right. There's a big gap of when they arrive here and the needs that they have. Uh, right. So, uh, Peter, do you have any idea what the minister was referring to when he said they will get some support? Well, we've been hearing this for a number of weeks now, and, and we just want a clarification. What is that support, if any? And you're absolutely right. There have been other provinces that have stepped up. We've heard of Quebec already um, offering um, health care coverage for, for a number of the, the new arrivals. So uh, we, we don't have anything yet. We, don't have, we, we were told that there should be uh, additional information happening as of April 1st. We realize that that's, that's the tomorrow. new budget year for the federal government. But the problem is, as any government, um, we're very thankful for the visas and, and for what they've done to date. But we need to start rolling out these programs because people are already arriving at Pearson Airport. And if they don't have family to go to, they don't have anyone. 
And, uh, you know, there's only so much the community can do and help out, but we're already starting. We've heard of one elderly lady. She, she arrived and she didn't have anyone. She just called, apparently she ended up in a homeless shelter. We were trying to track her down, but there's only, there's only so much we can do. So we're, we're really, we're really begging the government at this point to really step up and, and provide some form of assistance that, that we can work with. Do you, do you, how many people have come already? Peter, we do you heard know? anywhere from six to ten thousand, and those are kind of unofficial numbers, but they're basically based on uh, what the government is telling us. And some of those people are already obviously they've come to to families and friends. We know people already that are that are staying with with some friends and acquaintances that they know. But there's also people that have arrived under different um, um, visa programs. So there's already people that had been applying, people that were already traveling yeah. outside of the Ukraine, right? So, that, so there's different streams, um, but we know that under this particular stream of the special three-year visa, there's already 60,000 applicants, and the, the government's already overwhelmed with the number of people. So you can appreciate if there's 5 million in Europe, uh, it'd be a very large percentage that, w- that would want to come to Canada. Hmm. Um, interesting. As an aside, you know, uh, on our sister station down the hall right now, uh, there's a... a concert for Ukraine uh, by a very talented young woman, Anastasia Rizikov, and she and her family, they have family in Ukraine. And uh, they were saying a lot of people uh, don't want to come to Canada, but, uh, you know, that's just neither here nor there, I guess. But just the entire community is so taken with all of this, Elise, is, is there any sense of how many people might actually want to come here? I think that's the biggest challenge we have right now, Libby. Because it's not under a federal refugee program, it's very hard to predict if this is going to happen in trickles or in waves. And as Peter said, the people that we're already helping right now have come to Canada not on this program. Right. They, they either they... had visitor, you know, they had visitor passes, they came in as students. Um, but what we are seeing happening is that typically most people want to stay not far from their home country if there's anticipation that the war will end soon and people want to be able to go back and see whether or not they will be able to go back home and resume their life. The people, most of the people we're seeing right now have been individuals that have family members or friends in Canada. The requests that we're seeing tend to be people that have a connection to somebody here, but most of those people are not in a position to necessarily house, clothes, and finance people to live here until they get settled. And there's that big gap that we have. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I interviewed a couple last week, uh, the McCoonins, and they have two sons here, but one lives in a very small space and the other has children and the two parents are working from home. So it's, it's a difficult thing. And obviously they got here because they were already in the pipeline. They already had visas. Correct. And that's where community support comes in. And we need to have a consistent way of supporting these newcomers. But it's very difficult to predict, Libby, if we don't know whether or not these people will be getting medical coverage at all in a month or in three months. So we've been helping support some families with medical insurance um, because they don't know how that what that's going to look like. And that is, you know, I ask our clients, what do they stay up at night and worry about? And, of course, they worry about their family members and the situation back home, but they're terrified of being in Canada with no money, with no medical support, you know, and not knowing where they're going to live. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, Peter, Elise was saying, oh, the biometrics, not such a big problem. Uh, when I was talking to some refugee lawyers, some immigration lawyers, uh, less than two weeks ago, they were saying, well, actually, it is a big problem. What's your view? Well, it depends. I mean, some some people are having issues with it. Others are not. And, uh, you know, again, when we're talking about millions of people, there there's 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 exceptions. There's there's other issues. Language is an issue for many. It's not an issue for all. Um, so so all of those things are, are being worked through. And as I said, 
you know, we're really looking to the for the federal government to step up if possible. And we've been talking to so many agencies in Poland, and and they're having the same kind of level of frustration and and difficulty. Because, I mean, let's face it, Poland has close to two million refugees. Wow! How how, how long can one country like? There's already cities that are over overwhelmed. There's just no room for these people. And so for how long is that going to last? Now, God forbid that this war continues. And it looks like Russia's not backing down. They're just removing, moving their troops around um, around eastern Ukraine. Well, if they continue, if they make a, an attack on Odessa, that could be another million people that will try to flee. Hmm. So we, we could be looking at 10 million refugees. At, at what point do we say... We need a really big plan here. It's a country of over 40 million people. People are going to continue to flee if they continue to get bombed. Let's take a call from Bill in Toronto. Hi, Bill. Hi. You know, sometimes I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but this just seems like, you know, we we brought, Trudeau brought over 50,000 Syrians. They were accommodated. We found places for them to live. We, we fed them, we gave them medical care. You got Roxham Road, which is still open. They're coming over every day. They go into like a hotel in Scarborough, the Nova Hotel downtown. What's the problem with these refugees from Ukraine? Like, Ukraine. They're not. They're well. I'm, I'm. I'll let our guests speak to that. But they're not official refugees because there are closer countries. That the convention says they have to go to the closest safe country, and the, the, all the countries in Europe are taking them. Uh, and there's conventions about crossing the border, and like uh, they're they're already in a safe country. But we welcome them, even though they're contravening those conventions. So what? Why? Why is this different? Uh, okay. Different on, okay, I'll leave it at, at that. Thanks. Okay. Uh, who wants to take that? I'm happy to. Go ahead. So, just to clarify, when people are refugees and they come to Canada and they're brought in, there are mechanisms to greet them at the airport, provide them immediate shelter, and help orient them. And we have those programs, and it's still happening right now with the Afghan refugees. Because this population is not being called refugees or recognized as refugees by the federal government, those programs are not available to them. I think the big issue, Libby, is, and this goes back to the biometric test, when you're dealing with the volume of people that we're seeing, it's not 10,000, it's not 20,000, 60,000 people trying to get in in a two-week period since the program has been announced, The government needs to recognize that while these people have alternate ways to safety within Europe, the number of people are so, it's so big, it's so mammoth, that maybe we have to reconsider and say, we will take 100,000 or whatever that number is, because Canada is the second largest diaspora in the world of Ukrainians. Russia is first, Canada is second. For these people who are in trauma, who have lost so much, people want to come to Canada because they have family here. They have friends here. They're not alone here. And I think this is where we have to say, yes, there are European countries that are opening the borders, but if we want to help these people and address their immediate needs, their needs are no different than a refugee's needs. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think that probably uh, answers Bill's question. Uh, I'm assuming he is still listening. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, I think what he's saying was that these this kind of divide is is it's just a bureaucratic thing, Peter. That's exactly what we're saying. It's just a definition. I mean, in Europe, they're all called refugees. The word refugee means fleeing one's country for safety. That's exactly what these people have done. Can they go back? No. <laughs> a lot of them don't even have... I, certainly, there's a lot of them that want to go back. But Mariupol is a city of 500,000 people. You've seen the images. Oh there's nothing of Mariupol. There's nothing. 95% of the buildings are destroyed. Where are those people going to go if they're now in Europe or trying to make their way out? So the point is, they are refugees. It's a horrific war. I mean, today, again, they they were bombing hospitals, 
you know, how, how do you expect the mother and their children to, to go back under that kind of conflict? So, you know, we hope that it's going to be short-term and somehow this is all going to end, but we realize the reality is that it won't. And we're just asking Canada just to really step up the way some of the European countries have. They all have. They've put in refugee programs. They've put in assistance. UK here is offering 350 pounds a month. It's not a lot of money, but at least it's something. So we're not asking for billions of dollars. We're just asking for for some program with some assistance so so that we can help the maximum amount of people. And uh, Elise, again, um, do you know, do you have any inkling what the federal government is thinking about when they say some supports? You know, there's mention about creating some sort of system that family members will be able to sponsor their relatives, but that doesn't address the immediate issues of medical, of money, of housing. Look, it's impossible to imagine 60,000 people arriving at an airport. So let me give you a real person. We have a student who's living in Canada, Ukrainian, who is, you know, doing her university education. She has a 12-year-old sister. Her parents are alive. They want her to take guardianship and send the 12-year-old to Canada. How is a student at university who's living in her small accommodations supposed to take care, feed, and meet all the needs of her 12-year-old sister with no money support, no stipend of any type? What is she supposed to do and where is she supposed to go for help? And that's all because her sister is not being considered a refugee. Um, that's, uh, I don't know what to say to that. That's, and imagine that times 60,000. And we have dozens of stories like this. And unless you look at it by the individual, which is what we do with all of our clients at Jaius, each one has a story, each one has immediate needs. You know, the family we helped, 10 days ago, where the woman just finished her chemotherapy treatment. How do we make sure there's not a break in the treatment, you know, in terms of making sure she gets the right support? You know, the family that has five children and their parents are right now sleeping in their children's bedroom and the kids are sleeping on, you know, blankets on the floor. What are we going to do to support that family? They're thrilled that their parents are with them, but they just do not have the means to support them and they can't stay there long term in there in their tiny, you know, two-bedroom apartment, you know, or three-bedroom apartment. How do we help those families? If I can add something, I mean, we certainly were talking about the drain and the cost and everything else, but we actually have in our community people calling us saying, we're desperate for workers. We're short of labor in restaurants and all kinds of service industries, and we would gladly offer jobs to these people. So they may be a, a, a financial drain on the country for the very beginning, but we know what what it means when immigrants come to Canada that built this country. <laughs> It'd be a huge opportunity. And in fact, apparently immigration numbers are way down over the last two years because of COVID. Yeah. So so technically we have room and we have a labor shortage. Apparently, very evident here in the GTA. I hear, I talk with businesses all the time and they say the same thing. We just can't find people for a lot of these jobs. Well, here we have a great opportunity to help out people in dire need at the same time have a huge benefit to Canada. Yeah, as you pointed out, though, a lot of them are women and children, and uh, we have to figure that out as well. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask a question that might be a little bit out of left field, um, uh, and I don't know uh, which one of you would be best, uh, uh, best positioned to answer it. Is the possibility of human trafficking in those refugee areas is 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 that a big problem? Well, I could say it's definitely a concern. Uh, we certainly realize that. I mean, that there's been some horrific stories coming out of Ukraine where where babies have been have disappeared, uh, taken out, both on on the Russian side and some against on the border. Uh, there was a group that was arrested that were traveling with children that weren't their own. Um, there is certainly a concern, and that's why we'd love to work here in Canada with the settlement agencies to do some vetting in terms of, you know, what families are they going to be going to or who are, who are they going to be featured by. Again, that's where we need government support for that. 
You know, and I, and I concur with Peter. I mean, we've been in the same meetings where we've been talking about the fact that we need to understand these are highly vulnerable people. And we know for a fact that this does happen when there is a large movement of refugees taking place in one time where it's very easy for people not to know who to be, who is trusted, who is not trusted. And I think that's why Peter and Jaius and so many agencies across the country are really advocating that this group gets the support refugees are the need because when they come to the airport, we know that Red Cross is going to be there 12 hours a day to greet people. And then there's going to be a phone number for people to call if they have questions. What happens during that 12-hour window when someone doesn't speak English, you know, arrives to Canada and someone shows up and says, here, I'm, you know, I'm here to help, help you. You know, how are we going to prevent that from happening? And so we have to plan for these scenarios and we need um, wraparound support so we don't drop the baton. And that's what concerns us. Uh, we are almost out of time on this. Uh, Peter, what would you like to uh, leave us with on this? Oh, I would ask um, all uh, all Canadians to, to reach out to their members of Parliament in particular and, and really ask them to help uh, financially, to ask the, their MPPs in the province to, at the very least, to put in an interim program for health care uh, for for the people arriving. Um, those those basic needs is is really the gap that we need to address immediately. And Elise, thank you. Since since Peter already got that one in, I'm just going to say that there are tremendous opportunities for people to step up and get involved. So whether it is creating opportunities for jobs, if it's opportunity to stay informed so people know the facts. But we're creating a joyous welcome circles where volunteers of groups of five to eight can be there to help support these newcomers and be give them the support they need to integrate and orient themselves into life in Canada, help them rebuild their social and their professional networks. And we're building this on a system we've done before with hundreds of other refugees you know, where we see that volunteers actually make a big difference in helping someone successfully integrate into Canada, but also in a quicker way. And so, as Peter said, this community has the potential to really be active, contributing members of society, and that's what they want. But we just need to make sure that Canada steps up and helps them. Okay. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about this again soon. Thank you so much, Elise Herzig and Peter Sturen. Thank you. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we will drill down on the new housing strategy unveiled by the province yesterday. Uh, What does it mean for people who really would like to be able to get into a home of their own when we come back? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The Ford government announced a four-year plan to address the housing crisis. The legislation was tabled by Steve Clark, the Municipal Affairs and Housing Minister, yesterday, and it includes a slate of changes to municipal planning rules. The province says are required to get homes built faster and slow galloping house prices, but it doesn't include most of the recommendations made by the government's own housing affordability tax force, task force. It's been widely panned by advocates who say it doesn't do enough to add density or make some of those ubiquitous condos going up more affordable. Now, the minister says he held off because the municipalities are not necessarily on side with those changes. Uh, Translation, they don't want to annoy suburban residents so close to an election, Uh, probably some downtown residents as well. And there's also a new mechanism that can replace those very controversial MZOs, municipal zoning orders that just override everything. So uh, numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. What do you think should be done to uh, have more people able to get 
housed. Right now, we go to Mike Schreiner, leader of the Green Party of Ontario, Mike Moffat, Senior Director of Policy Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute, and Josh Matlow, Toronto City Council for Ward 12 St. Paul's. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hey, Libby. Hello. Okay, let us begin with uh, Josh. Uh, uh, you are not a fan of this. That's uh, that's that's a fair statement, Libby. Um, because you know, ultimately, what the government's "More Homes for Everyone" bill one hundred nine does is uh, it, it perversely doesn't achieve its own goal, which is to uh, ostensibly expedite the process to allow for, for new housing to be built. In fact, uh, what it does by setting an arbitrary timeline, in other words, it says city planners need to approve a development within 90 days or else the municipality is penalized. What that will do is, without considering the genuine complexities of considering you know, everything from wind shear assessment to basic engineering reports to uh, circulating the uh, proposals to the school boards and other divisions, etc. cetera. Uh, it just sets an arbitrary deadline with a penalty, which means that, that more and more of these applications will be rejected by planning staff because they won't be able to do that within that 90 days uh, uh, well. And it's going to end up at the, the provincially appointed Ontario Land Tribunal, which already is backlogged, which also will mean that not only will municipalities raise concerns about this uh, this uh, uh, this new legislation, I can imagine that after a period of time, even some developers will find that they're in a longer queue waiting for something to happen than if they had gone through the professional planners at the city. Uh, Mike Schreiner, uh, that my next question was going to be about developers. I sort of I look at this and wonder: Does this just make it easier for developers to do what the heck they want? Well, Libby, I tell you what, this bill is just bitterly disappointing, and it fails to understand the severity of the housing crisis and the urgency to address it. And as Councillor Matlow said, the province needs to look in the mirror. Uh, the premier and the housing minister needs to look in the mirror and take responsibility for the own way in which they're creating delays in the system by bringing back essentially what was the old Ontario Municipal Board through the Ontario Land Tribunal, which is enabling developers and others to make appeals to delay um, housing construction. And as the councillor said, if municipal municipalities don't have the staff capacity to quickly, um, you know, fast track uh, uh, building applications and or deal with the complexity of them, it's just likely going to lead to more appeals to the Ontario Land Tribunal, which is even going to further delay the increase in supply. And then the other thing is, is there is nothing, literally nothing in this bill to ensure that any of that housing supply is actually affordable for people who need it. We need the province to step up at the table with some dollars to support nonprofits, co-ops, and social housing to actually build housing that's affordable for young families. Mike Moffat, is there anything good about this bill? Well, I, I, I agree with uh, both Mike and Josh that on the supply side, there really isn't much there. It's uh, quite disappointing to see the government back off on so many of the task force recommendations. On the demand side, the speculative demand, I think there are uh, a number of decent provisions, particularly around uh, foreign buyers ex- extending that tax to uh, across the province and applying it to international students who are a source of some speculative demand. So I think there are just some let decent me, things on the demand side, but on the supply side, it's it's very quite weak. Sorry, I just want to step in to clarify. You're referring to uh, the the tax for uh, foreign owners is is up to twenty percent now. Yeah, it's it's up to twenty per. It's gone from fifteen to twenty percent. But I think the other two changes around that are going to be more transformative. First of all, the existing tax only applies in the the GTA and surrounding areas. Now it would apply to the entire province. And there was a pre-existing exemption for international students. They'd be exempt from the tax. They are no longer exempt from that tax, and that could uh, change things as well. Yeah, the, we know of a lot of foreign buyers. They buy a condo for for their kids. The kids come and go to university, and and live in a really nice condo. 
and uh, that's what happens to the supply. Yeah, absolutely, and that's uh, it's a real issue in a lot of uh, smaller college uh, communities, like Kingston and, and London, and so on. So, th- so those things might make a difference, uh, but they're not going to cause housing to become more affordable. Rather, they might just slow the growth of uh, of prices somewhat. Uh, now, the government says that the reason it didn't go further is that the municipalities themselves were not on side with these changes. Josh, is there any merit to that explanation? Well, speaking speaking only for uh, the city of Toronto, um, uh, the irony is, is that I expect uh, the city of Toronto will very soon be going far further to address the, the middle, the missing middle needs in, in 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 our city, in our neighborhoods, then the province is uh, demonstrating uh, any courage to to address it all. Uh, and I think there was a lot of speculation that the province would be doing some substantive uh, work on that, and they've backtracked on any of those even teasing promises that they've made. What they didn't put into their legislation, as uh, as, as as Mike and Mike have uh, have, have uh, alluded to, is is any real solutions. Uh, to contribute to uh, addressing the housing crisis. I mean, it, the saddest thing about this legislation is that it's such an immature and disappointing response to such a serious crisis that is so real to so many people's lives. And, like, you know, this is a government that removed rent control on all new units being built in Ontario. They should return that. They should be expanding uh, IZ and inclusionary zoning. They should be supporting government-built uh, affordable housing. They should be you know, working with the federal government on addressing the financialization of housing and the REITs. There's, there's real things that can be done if they decide to do it. What they did here is, yeah, a couple of good things, but overall, um, it's, 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 it feels like a big announcement before an election, but it doesn't, there isn't a lot of substance. And actually, the worst thing is, it breaks the process. It actually counters what their stated goals ostensibly are, because What's going to happen, I can tell you, if, if, if they had bothered actually talking to any professional planner at the city of Toronto, they would know that this is going to make things harder. And if, if the city is simply penalized on an arbitrary timeline, what's going to happen is it's going to go to their uh, appointed tribunal. There's going to be backlogs. Um, and, and, and many of the most important benefits to communities, whether it be discussing how to get childcare, school capacity, infrastructure parks, I mean, that's just not going to be what we're going to see in the future. And I'm really concerned that this actually hurts our collective ability to address the housing crisis affordability along with social services uh, and infrastructure that's needed to support complete communities. Okay, well, I I want to talk about this new mechanism. First, we've got to take another break. Uh, So we'll be back on the other side of it. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the government's new housing legislation. It's called the More Homes for Everyone Act. Uh, our guests uh, don't think that will be the case. And uh, first of all, Mike Schreiner, do you think that this will protect the green belt from development? Well, you know, I'm deeply concerned about that, especially given the premier's uh, hell-bent on doubling down on the Holland Marsh Highway and Highway 413. Both will travel through the Greenbelt. Um, in the case of 413, pave over 2,000 acres of top-quality farmland, uh, 65 wetlands, and unleash more sprawl. And this is exactly why the Ontario Greens have been calling for a housing plan that provides more housing choice for people through gentle density and missing metal housing within our existing urban boundaries. And you know what? The province, the government had a chance with this bill to bring in some things like as of right zoning for duplexes, triplexes, and quadplexes to extend uh, inclusionary zoning to make more affordable housing available in a whole variety of projects. And when the minister says, you know, we have to consult more. I think it's on this issue. And what I heard pushback from municipalities was on um, the task force's recommendations around not respecting heritage. And I totally agree. We should be respecting heritage. I heard some pushback on as of right zoning for four-story apartments, but I didn't hear it 
on providing more housing options for people like duplexes and triplexes and laneway housing, secondary suites, tiny homes, and a whole host of other options that would allow us to increase housing supply of affordable types of housing uh, in a way within our existing urban boundaries so we can protect the far, our farmland, our wetlands, and the greenbelt. Well, yeah, first of all, I, I keep I keep seeing stories uh, on our sister publication, Blog TO, about tiny homes that are listed for over a million dollars. So <laughs> I don't know about the affordability. Um, Mike Moffat, I want to get to this new mechanism, and I know it gets like really technical, I think, <laughs> on purpose to confuse us. But there's a new mechanism, and according to what the government says, that it's going to require more consultation. They aren't just going to be able to ride roughshod over uh, local decisions, and it'll have to be clear that local councils want whatever they're trying to accelerate. Um, is, is is that how you read it? Yeah, that, that, that's my reading as well. And yeah, no, I, I think it's funny, and I, I agree with Josh that, uh, you know, this is all about sort of reducing red tape and delays, but it actually in, introduces uh, more delays into the system where if uh, they had followed the, the task force's recommendation and allowed duplexes and triplexes by right, that sort of bypasses, you know, all of all, all of the uh, both delays and uh, barriers to, to getting things done. So, yeah, again, I, I'm a little bit surprised that the, the government has spent uh, time sort of talking about uh, this being a crisis and this being an emergency. But what we got yesterday was, well, we'll work with the municipalities and maybe we'll implement this in a few years. And I think that's disappointing for, for anyone who wants housing action today. Right. Uh, and again, do you buy the argument that the municipalities just weren't ready? Well, I, ultimately, it's, a, it's about showing leadership, I, I think. Uh, the, the province could do this uh, if they wanted uh, if they wanted to. And I agree with Mike Schreiner that there are things that uh, municipalities are more concerned with, again, with, with heritage and, and so on, that I don't think uh, introducing, you know, even duplexes as of right would have been all that contentious uh, with municipalities. Uh, f- full disclosure, I, I, I live in a heritage area and, uh, I'd like to see the heritage being respected. Josh, uh, does this plan respect heritage? Well, this, I mean, this government, even the way that they changed the appeal process to heritage hasn't been respecting heritage, uh, uh, uh certainly in Toronto. Uh, uh, so, you know, nothing that this government done has suggested that that has been a priority thus far. So I am surprised that they want to consult on something that they've already, you know, seemed to dismiss. That being said, though, there are, there are, you know, many examples of where, uh, those two priorities, uh, housing and heritage need not conflict. And I can point to examples, uh, uh, you know, in our community in Midtown Toronto. Uh, where, uh, where, where, where heritage is maintained while there is increased density, uh, you know, on that space to be able to create housing above and around. And, 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 you know, we need to find more opportunities to just, you know, find some common ground. Um, what this government has done is rather than, you know, work towards that end has simply said, we don't want to deal with anything that contentious. We want to put this off until after the election. Uh, so, you know, in many ways, they've ironically unified, uh, you know, some people on the ground that have very, very diverse views about housing, uh, but are all uh, disappointed with what the government has done. Um, I, I, I want to, re- you know, if I may just return to the initial point that, that I made earlier, though, that this doesn't just put off tough decisions to another day. This actively harms the process. This actually uh, counters their stated goals. Uh, and this hurts both affordability and good community planning. Uh, and, you know, I just, I want a government that is, regardless, regardless of politics or ideology, at least competent in the policy that they are, are creating. And this is just bad policy. Um, Mike Moffat, so to the issue of affordability, I mean, here in Toronto, housing is through the roof. Condos are through the roof. It, it's just um, 
I mean, it's not just, but part part of the issue is that there are a lot of people who want to live in this city. So ultimately, if we live in, you know, free market society, how do you make it more affordable? Well, and it's not limited uh, to Toronto, uh, you know, places like, like Chatham, Kent, uh, you know, places like Thorold have seen prices triple uh, over the last 10 years. And I think ultimately, it, in fact, it would be making it more like a free market, I think, would be the, uh, necessary. So right now, there, you know, that those sort of limitations on zoning of telling people, no, you can't put a duplex or triplex here, you know, it's a... It's a very tightly planned and con- tightly controlled market, and the, the provincial government had an opportunity to liberalize it, actually introduce some free market forces into this uh, into the system, and, and chose not to do it. So, you know, I don't think that this is a failure of the free market when you're you're telling people uh, that they you know they can't build a duplex. Hmm. Interesting take, Mike Schreiner. Yeah, Libby, I want to make two points here. And one, one before I do that, I just want to reemphasize the point uh, Councillor Matlow is making. The irony of this bill is, is it actually makes it worse. It's actually going to slow down uh, approvals and the supply of housing. To the point about the market, we need both market solutions and we need public sector solutions. The market solutions is to allow people more options and more choices by enabling people to do duplexes and triplexes and laneway housing and secondary suites and things like that. On the public side of things, we have to be honest. Starting in the mid-1990s, both the provincial and federal governments got out of the housing game. They stopped supporting nonprofit, co-op, and social housing. The affordability crisis has been getting worse ever since, and now it's at a breaking point. And I just can't believe the current government, they've been in office for four years, and they want to consult more when we have an emergency. A whole generation who might not have an affordable place to purchase or rent. We've got to get government back involved in supporting nonprofits, co-ops, and social housing to build that affordable housing supply to complement the supply that's being built in the private market. So we need both. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are I? What are the chances of that? Well, you know what? The, I mean, the Ontario Greens. We've put forward a costed plan for how to do it, and one of the ways we would pay for it is. You know, we spend almost $7 billion for electricity subsidies in Ontario. Uh, that disproportionately benefits wealthy households. So why don't we at least means test those and take some of that money and, and make sure there's some money available so people who can't even afford a home can afford a home rather than subsidizing electricity costs for wealthy households. Josh Matlow, um, do you think this will become something of an election issue? I know that it, it is for younger people who were hopeful that there might be something to help them get into the market. It should be, and I hope it is. I mean, ultimately, you know, we all talk about, you know, young people and how they can't afford the city rhetorically, but the reality is, like, if you actually speak with so many younger Torontonians, they really are like, it's a, like they're giving up on their dreams, um, like to ever, ever own a place. And renting has now become so unaffordable that many, many younger people are, are, are having to leave the city. Um, and it's just, that is a reality. And we're experiencing that data will demonstrate that that is a growing and disturbing and alarming trend. So I very much hope that this election isn't just monopolized by, you know, silly, silly wedge issues like whether or not you want a buck of beer or something like that, but that housing is a core priority that is debated. And hopefully that debate will result in solutions moving forward by whoever's elected. This government has a chance. It had a chance. And it's just so disappointing that, like, this is their response. After all this talk, it's just it's it ha- it has to be a focus. Mike Moffat, how do you see this shaping up uh, as an election issue? I, I think it's going to be the biggest uh, election issue, particularly with anybody under thirty-five. I joke. I, I work with a team of twenty research associates at the Smart Prosperity Institute, almost all of which are under thirty. And, you know, I do all of these interviews, and I have to sort of apologize to them. I'm like, oh, sorry, I got to go online and talk about housing and. Their response is always like, well, you're doing God's work. <laughs> we want you out there talking about this issue because it's, 
is top of mind for all of them. So I'm cautiously optimistic we're going to have a race to the top where each of the parties try and outdo each other on housing. I think that would be a fantastic outcome. Well, uh, my comment on, on all those people under 35, do they vote? Well, I, I think if you give them a reason to, I think they're, uh, you know, they are so sort of fed up right now. I think they are, um, you know, they're, they're a little bit cynical. I, I think they are, you know, or skeptical, maybe a better term to put it, that, that nobody is sort of representing their interests. So I think if there is a vision that's put out there by one or more of the parties that they can get behind, they are very, very motivated uh, for change. Okay, we are uh, almost out of time on this. I'm going to go around the virtual table, give everybody 30 seconds, starting with Josh Matlow. Um, Simply put, um, what the government has announced is hurting housing and hurting building uh, communities that are complete with services, infrastructure, and parks. Uh, What I would like to see is policy that uh, actually addresses affordability and quality of life. So um, I'm really glad that you're paying attention to this, and I you know, agree with Mike that uh, this this will and should be a priority issue during both the provincial and, frankly, the municipal election as well. Mike Schreiner. Yeah, Libby, thank you for uh, being uh, hosting this discussion because we have a whole generation that's wondering if they'll ever be able to own a home or even be able to pay rent, uh, particularly in, in places like Toronto, but also, in, you know, my home in Guelph. Uh, you know, my oldest daughter, you know, is in her early 20s and asking me, like, am I ever going to be able to afford a home? And we need both private market-based uh, solutions and we need the public sector to come in and help build affordable housing. We need both. We need all three levels of government working together. And I also just want to say it's also an issue for seniors. I have so many seniors telling me that they would love to downsize and open up a home for a young family, but they can't even find an affordable place to to downsize to. So it is an affordability issue across the entire continuum. Mike Moffat, last word to you. Yeah, well, again, I'll uh, echo uh, Mike and Josh, and, and thank you so much for highlighting uh, this issue. And I'll just say, as Josh points out, we have uh, both a municipal election and provincial election this year. So when those candidates come to the door, you know, ask them, what are you doing uh, about this issue? And, you know, get uh, get details, you know, ask specific questions, because this absolutely is a crisis. I do think there are some good things in this bill, but it doesn't go nearly far enough uh, to address the magnitude of the problem we have in the, in the province of Ontario. Okay, thank you so much, Mike Schreiner, Mike Moffat, and Josh Matlow. Appreciate it. Thank you all. And that is all the time we have for today. Remember, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow, and uh, that's the day when you set the agenda. So please call in tomorrow. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.